This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. searched far and wide, but finally, after an exhaustive research project on the part of not only me, but my staff, we have discovered the only man who, of any renown anyway, who appears not to have classified documents in his home or his office. Yes, that's right. Uh, Among the many accolades that can be said of Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. Veteran radio and TV broadcaster, expert on space and astronomy, edutainer, podcaster at WABCRadio.com. You can add that as best as we can tell, he has not yet mishandled classified information. And we're grateful for it because that means he's got an hour to spend with us talking about space. Steve, it is great to talk with you, my friend. Thanks, as always, for joining me on the radio. Good morning to all you and the listeners out there. And I say yes, definitely, categorically, no classified documents anywhere within my reach. How about that? (laughs) Outstanding. All right. Uh, There's a lot to get to. And believe it or not, callers are already queuing up uh, to ask you questions. And if people want to do that, they can do so at 800-848-9222. If people have not heard our uh, biweekly conversations before, you're in for a real treat because we're going to talk about space. We're going to talk about uh, anything that's in the sky. We're going to talk about aviation. We're going to talk about anything that involves looking up. And if you have questions about specific matters that we don't get to, we'll try and take as many of your calls as we can. 800 848 Nine two two two. Let me ask you about a story that um, some people have found kind of frightening and others have found uh, very surprising. And that's that the fact that we're seeing in the sky fewer stars, but we're seeing more light. Why, when we look up in the night sky, are we seeing fewer stars? What's going on? Well, Frank, it's an interesting question, and here's the basic answer. Obviously, population shifting around the world. There are very few super dark locations on Earth. If we were to pick two right now in this early morning show, I would say the Atacama Desert of Chile, where some of the largest telescopes in the world, that still has, I would think, one of the best areas of dark skies. And let's not forget Antarctica. That's an area that obviously doesn't have a lot of people. But as we continue to see cities grow and Right here, let's say in Phoenix, Arizona, as we talk later about this Comet ZTF, I was out the other morning, right around 3.30 in the morning, with a pair of binoculars looking for the comet. And we're the fifth largest city in America, and still, Frank, the extinction, meaning the light, the extinction of the stars is pretty well pronounced. But in a more scientific way, in a scientific answer, astronomers and space scientists are saying that the increase of light pollution, that's the term, is increasing at an astronomical rate, no pun intended, at about 10% a year. And if you take a look at these different websites out there, I mean, there's literally hundreds of them that show the Earth at night. We're seeing, of course, along the East Coast, not a good reason not to listen to the show, and of course not to look at the sky. You can still see things. But the point is, the light in the sky, that's artificial lighting, is diminishing so much of what we see, obviously. Now, 
Most people are probably wondering, well, what might be the culprit? Just big cities, more lights? Actually, we're talking about LED light. You know, light-emitting diodes are now also, I hate to use the word, part of the problem. They were once part of the solution for energy consumption. You know, I put a whole bunch of them in my RV so I could lower the amount of energy that that RV is using when you're riding down the road. But the blue light that is coming from the spectrum on that is thought to also increase the ability of light pollution. Like they remind us, right, Frank, don't stare at a blue screen, your, you know, your computer screen all night. They have, what, these blue glasses that protect your eyes. We're having an overpopulation of LED lighting and other man-made lighting to decrease the skies. So let's hope in the next 20, 30 years we can still do this show and still tell people what to see in the sky. But are, does this mean anything for people listening to us other than, mm-hmm. I don't know, I'll describe a mild annoyance at not being able to see our favorite constellation anymore? Does the increase in light pollution lead to any sort of long-term effects? I mean, we've heard a lot over the years about how uh, seeing the sun, which, as right. we know, as a star can lead to a decrease in vitamin um, see, not seeing the sun can lead to a decrease in vitamin D does not seeing the stars have any sort of physical or a psychological effect on anybody as far as we know I'm not sure but I always say the truth and always tell the truth here I would say this way not being a medical doctor in this we also know that the problem of the blue light which is coming from our screens and now we're talking about LEDs that could have an issue with people and their ability to sleep properly And I can't say that categorically. It's just a pretty educated guess. But the problem is when we're typically going out into the nighttime sky to look at, say, an object, let's say you're out in the middle of somewhere in Central Park, you can still see bright planets, you can see the moon. But obviously the total population with the big cities and also the increase of just man-made lighting, you know, non-natural lighting out there is increasing it. And then the big problem that I see is I drive along freeways like people do. So many of these gigantic LED signs say, I'm a capitalist at heart, but the problematic thing is it's what's extincting out the nighttime sky, but I'm not sure, Frank, what that has as a long-term effect or a short-term effect Mm. on the health of human beings. It's just that, for the most part, I would say simply it can be... Kind of an annoyance for those that love this subject. Speaking of the uh, psychological well-being effect of looking at the sun, I uh, brought a story to the listeners' attention a couple of days ago about how researchers have found that looking at sunsets or sunrises can actually lead to a tremendously beneficial psychological impact on people. And it's not me saying this. This is some very reputable researchers saying it. Sure. There's a very interesting story about sunsets on Mars. Apparently, sunsets on Mars don't look exactly as they do here, do they? Not at all. And this is very interesting. And I guess it goes back to the question, which we can answer in the backwards way. Why are skies blue in the daytime? But the problematic thing on Mars, the Mars sunsets are blue. And here's why. Because like on Earth, with our own atmosphere here, Martian atmosphere is mostly carbon dioxide and iron-rich dust. So this creates a Martian red sky during the daytime. But as the sun sets on Mars, Frank, what happens is the dust preserves the short blue wavelengths of light. And we get a most amazing, at least that's what images show from some of the landers. But we know now that Martian sunsets should appear blue. Now, wouldn't that be one of the most incredible sights in nature, seeing just the reverse, basically, of what we have here on the Earth, all due to a lot of the things that are going on in the Martian atmosphere? Remember, Carbon dioxide is the main constituent and a heck of a lot of iron-rich dust, which probably floats around. I haven't been there yet, but from the images that we're getting to see from rovers 
and even from spacecraft up above. Mm. That would be a most amazing sight to see. And I think there's actually some images from these particular rovers that actually show just what I said to be an absolute confirmed fact. So if any of us are ever on Mars and we use the expression once in a blue sunset, it probably (laughs) won't mean exactly what it does here. Not at all, but there's another factor that we have to consider. If you were on the surface of Mars, the astronomers are telling us, space scientists more precisely, that the size of the sun is only two-thirds, obviously, the diameter, since it's much farther away. But you're still getting a good amount of light on the surface of Mars. It would be like an eerie day if, God forbid, anybody's been anywhere near a forest fire. You can see how the sun in the daytime looks as if it's just an orange or yellow ball in the sky, And all kinds of things are happening because of dust. So the Martian atmosphere changes. It's variable. And here's what happens. Mars has some of the most hellacious, Frank, windstorms. They have, like we have here in Arizona, we call them summer haboobs when the monsoon season kicks in. And people who've been out in the West and other parts of the world, they do know that this particular phenomenon exists. But literally, we can have a beautifully clear day, let's say, here in Phoenix, And out of the afternoon heating, you know, the ambient heating in the atmosphere, the moisture going up, big thunderclouds are forming. And what they do is when they collapse, that air gets pushed down. And what do we have in the deserts here? Plenty of dust. So I've seen it come through my garage door in one storm. The whole sky was orange, and my car looked like it came out of some kind of a paint factory, not the choice of my favorite color. Wow, that is wild. <laughs> yeah. uh, talking with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. One thing that people have been uh, emailing me all week about, and I have avoided commenting on it mm-hmm. because I wanted to ask you about it, is this once-in-a-lifetime green comet that is approaching the Earth. Apparently, this is an exotic green comet that we haven't seen on our planet since maybe the Stone Age. What yes. is this? Well, this particular comet, Frank, and I'm glad we're talking about this, because unfortunately, a lot of the legacy media, I have to say this, they don't get it right. It's the same story, and I'll I'll bring one up, too, about an asteroid that's coming very close to the Earth actually today. And this is a really good news story. But going back to the comet, this particular comet, the news media has been saying, oh, it's a green comet. Yes, that's correct. But if you don't read into the details of a lot of these stories, it makes it seem to the average person out there, hey, a lot of us out there don't you know, know so much. That's why we listen to programs like this, and I'm very appreciative of that. But more importantly, we find out that this particular comet is really not that bright. I was out there in my light-polluted skies in Phoenix, and I saw it as a tiny little smudge. But why is this important? Because comets, if you look at them intrinsically, are still the remnants of the creation of the solar system. And this goes back billions of years. So there, imagine this, if you're in the mind's eye. If you look way out beyond the orbit of Pluto, there's an orbital area around the sun called the Oort cloud. And this was named after a Danish astronomer who obviously, Jan Oort, he was the one who said, you know, outside the perimeter of these planets, way out there, billions of astronomical units, there's this large group of these frozen objects. And these are pretty large. They're the remnants of creation. Some of the nuclei of these comets, Frank, can be upwards of 20, maybe even 100 miles in diameter. So the sun's pulled this one back. It hasn't been around in the sun's area since 50,000 years ago. But the good news is it's climbing north in the sky. So over the next few weeks, this comet's what we call circumpolar, meaning it stays up in the northern Mm. sky and it's up all night. It doesn't set. But the interesting thing about this comet is right now, comets can have three tails. There's a dust tail, there's a plasma tail, like charged particles, like a neon tube, and then there's a thing called the anti-tail. 
And the anti-tail is really an illusion. It's just the angle of which we're looking at the comet. But if you look on big media sites out there, you'll see, like spaceweather.com, you'll see these amazing pictures of the green comet. It'll get closest to the Earth February 2nd by about 26 million miles. And, Frank, we're hoping for another big comet to be coming down the pipeline. We'll talk about that hopefully in future shows. But this one that we'll be talking about later in the future programs might be something that we might get to see, like the Hale-Bopp comet of days gone by, and maybe even the comet that was around that fizzled out, but people saw it, the comet Kahootek of the 70s. So comets are fascinating. This one's not super bright yet, but in dark skies, binoculars are recommended. And that's why we talk about this and tell people the truth, because when you read those stories, wouldn't you agree? Sometimes it's as if the thing is going to hang right in your sky and look like a big electric tube that you just plugged in. Not quite. Absolutely. Talking with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. By the way, if you want to check out the uh, Dr. Sky blog, you can go to KTAR.com. If you want to listen to the Dr. Sky experience, head on over to uh, WABCradio.com. Steve, uh, half a century ago, people used to get pretty excited about uh, trips to the, mu- uh, to the moon, not just Americans, yes. but world citizens. And it looks like NASA may be uh, heading in that direction with the Artemis Project. Where are we with the Ar- Artemis Project, and how soon till we're back on the moon? Well, the answer to that is really simple. The Artemis One was a great success with the dummies on board and the remote control that the uh, people at NASA had you know, produced and coordinated its amazing flight well beyond the moon. Probably next year, if all goes well, another of the big SLS-type heavy launch rockets, this one, of course, Artemis Two. this time with a crude kind of a replicant of what Apollo 8 did back in the late 1960s. And then, to answer the question... Artemis Three is an ambitious project to bring humans back to the South Pole of the Moon, probably, and this is the real optimistic uh, date here, probably as early as 2025. Now, what SpaceX has is a project to help develop a lander for that particular mission. That's in development stages, I believe, as we're speaking. And that is going to be quite an amazing mission. We obviously haven't been back to the surface of the moon since the early 70s. And this is going to be just a heck of a ride. But where they're going... This is kind of unusual. During the Apollo era, most of the Apollo landing sites, for the most part, were as close or near close to the equator as possible. That's a lot of details in the background because of orbital dynamics, the ability to land in what we called flatter areas, maybe with the exception of Apollo 15. But this particular mission, as Artemis III will continue and successfully, we believe, land on the moon with astronauts, This will go to the south pole of the moon, which to me is just an amazing story unto itself. It's an area at the south pole of the moon called the Aiken Basin. It's one of the largest impact areas on the moon. And this is really bizarre because you're not landing in flat regions as much. You're landing in very rugged terrain. So I just hope, and I'm sure the technology is out there, Mm. to provide a smooth landing, kind of similar to what we saw in the 2001 Space Odyssey movie, when the astronauts went to the moon in that fictional depiction with the great genius Stanley Kubrick. So it looks like 2025, and I think that's a little optimistic, to say the least. All right. Well, uh, fingers crossed. We're going to continue with uh, Steve Cates in just a moment. We're going to take your calls. We have one, two, three, four open lines, 800-848-9222. That's uh, 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight, joined for the hour by Dr. Sky. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. 
Fly me to the moon Let me play among the stars Let me see what spring is like on Jupiter and Mars In other words Hold my hand In other words Baby, kiss me This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno, uh, joined for the hour by Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. He's one of my favorite people to talk to, not only because he has uh, such a great radio voice, but because he's chock full of knowledge about what's happening in the night sky, and he frames it in in ways that even average ordinary people like me can understand. If you want to check out his podcast, The Dr. Sky Experience, uh, you can get in-depth analysis and conversation on all the subjects we're talking about today, comets, uh, other planets, sunsets on Mars, all sorts of stuff. Just go to redapplepodcastnetwork.com and search uh, Dr. Sky. You can also check out uh, his uh, Dr. Sky blog at ktar.com. All right, uh, Steve, a bunch of people have been queuing up to talk with you. Uh, Let's begin with William in Asbury Park. Hello, William. Well, it's a real honor, Mr. Scott, because well, I'm a long-time thank- fan of yours. Well, thank anyway, you. Uh, I appreciate that. Yeah. As a stepping stone for us mining the outer, you know, solar systems, you know, getting rare earth metals from mines, sure. we have to live in space. <clears throat> now, what are your thoughts on space colonies? There was a show I watched as a kid where they had – Basically, it was a giant tube, and through centrifugal force, the tube right. spun to create gravity using mirrors to reflect the sunlight into the colonies, and you had an environment that was much like Earth, and the shield in front of the colony to, to shield it from the uh, the bad the bad types of radiation ionized sure. particles. What is your feasibility of, about something like that working out? Well, I think, William, you really bring up a good point. There was a book, and forgive me the name, but... Gerard O'Neill was actually author of that, and he talked about these habitatable, you know, areas in space. We all go back to that movie I just mentioned before, 2001: A Space Odyssey, the Kubrick movie. We saw the big wheel in the sky, looked like a big piece of macaroni. But the reality is, we're probably a long way off to really building those type of colonies, like a city. But the first thing we have to do is do a replacement for the International Space Station. I mean, it's done its job. It's been, you know, it's done a very good job for the most part in international cooperation up till now, you know, as the Russians are kind of defecting from that. But the other thing is we're probably looking at the next, to answer your question completely, the next of the habitable type space stations will be one actually around the moon called the Gateway. And we were talking before, William, you've probably heard about Artemis III hopefully going to the moon in 2025 with actual astronauts on the surface. They need now a kind of a, you know, a midway point there, kind of a rest place to go back. Oh, of just the, the Lagrange points. Right. They could do that. That's The Lagrange points, as you're talking about, are also important. And just to let everybody know what that is, some 60 degrees on either side of a body, let's say like the Earth or Jupiter, you could have these positions where obviously an object is static, you know, static or, st- or almost standing still. Hubble, I mean, the James Webb Telescope, excuse me, is kind of at one of those Lagranges. But to put it in perspective, I think the next real feasible way to do what you're talking about, 
the next iteration is probably going to be the Gateway Space Station, which will be a lunar orbit space station. And even that is probably, what, six, seven years away, even to start construction. So there you go, William. But thank you for being interested. Yeah, one, thank- one more question, sir. Real yeah, quick, William, because a lot of people on the hold here, William. Real quick. Uh, it, I know they got anti-gravity technology. It gets into classified stuff. But it's 2023. Where's my hoverboard? I want to shred it. <laughs> thank you. Hey, I'm with you, my friend. Thank you, William. <laughs> thank you. 800-848-9222. John is in Freehold, New Jersey. Hello, John. Hey, how are you guys? Um, Good morning. So we were talking about light pollution, and yes. uh, I was wondering, there's literally thousands uh, and thousands, like uh, space, SpaceX and uh, mm-hmm. Jeff Bezos, Amazon, they have like over 5,000 uh, satellites in, the, yes. in orbit. Does that contribute to light pollution? Yes, John. You know, you brought up something that I wasn't even ready to talk about, but hey, you, you knocked it out of the park. Obviously, ground light pollution is of concern. But the more objects that you put up there, just ask the astronomy community. They're aghast that all these images that they're getting spoiled. When they're trying to, let's say, take a picture of a new galaxy billions of light years away. Well, oh, no, here comes this big line across the picture. So that does have reflectivity. Now, SpaceX, give them credit for this. They've looked at ways to dampen or diminish the light from some of these Starlink satellites. Apparently, that has worked. But you're right. There's so many things out there, John, that are in space right now, and they're actually talking about putting up some of these other new type of satellites, which are like a giant big piece of like aluminum foil, if you want to call it, the lack of a better description. It will be used for communications, and some of those things will be brighter than Venus or maybe half as bright as the moon. Hmm. So somehow, wow, you really hit it out. You knocked it out of the park, John. You're right. And, uh, the atmospheric satellites, are, I mean, the satellites in space are also contributing to a diminished of the darkness of the sky. And now, real quick, just uh, because there's so many things orbiting us, now, if you wanted to launch something into space, mm-hmm. you would have to calculate, like, and go in between everything orbiting? Well, not necessarily. I mean, it may look like we're, we're talking and describing this to everybody that it's so jam-packed up there. Actually, it starts to get jam-packed at different levels above the Earth. We call it low Earth orbit. That's getting really crowded. But there are areas in there, just like frequencies on a radio, on a radio dial. There's different layers that you could go to. But once we saturate all those, see, the Earth right now, John, actually has a ring. If somebody says, oh, Saturn and Uranus and Neptune have rings, they do, and others do. But we have a ring around our Earth, and what's it made of? Uh, It's made of John and Frank of natural of man-made satellites. So that's a big ring called geosynchronous, but the brightness is also being increased by the total number of those in the sky. Thank you, John. Appreciate that. 800-848-9222. We'll continue with your calls in uh, in just a moment. Um, you alluded to uh, SpaceX. Obviously, that's the, uh, the Elon Musk foray into mm-hmm. both private and public space travel because uh, he's had no problem partnering with NASA, depending on the specific project. What is the latest on the SpaceX Starships and the Mega Booster? Well, this is really fascinating. It would take hours to go into great detail, but here's the encapsulated version. SpaceX down at Starbase, Texas, is actually on the launch pad with a new iteration of Starship. This is the next of the Starships. They actually had a couple Actually, one of them actually did the ascent and land safely kind of thing, but now they're moving forward with this incredible booster rocket that's going to be the largest, most powerful booster rocket ever. 
this will have some 16 million pounds of thrust. Now, that's really off the charts. I mean, even the big SLS Artemis rocket had more power than Elon Musk, you know, heavy, heavy rocket. But this is fascinating. But there's something even more bizarre. There's like this 400-foot tower, like a launch tower. We see them when the NASA rockets go off. This is called Mechazilla. And what's weird about this is it's really cool. It's like true science fiction, like Transformers. It's a large tower, Frank, that has a big grappling arm. And what it can do is it can actually hoist this big booster rocket called Booster 7 and put Starship 24 on top of it. Mm. But that's not the exciting part that I wanted to tell everybody about. Once this rocket launches, which hopefully, according to SpaceX, I don't have the exact date, maybe as early as late February, maybe March, to test out Starship in orbit. But get a load of this. When that giant Booster 7 rocket launches, just like we have with the Falcon 9 boosters, imagine this monstrous rocket booster coming back and literally going in between the jaws or the claw of the Mechazilla so that it will actually grapple it as it comes down from space, a reusable massive booster rocket. And the same thing will happen with the Starship. Now that, to me get some sort of, what, a Nobel Prize or something like that, if that can be accomplished, that's only the stuff you'd see in a sci-fi movie. That's going to be a reality, according to Elon Musk. Yeah, that is absolutely, absolutely yeah. wild. Uh, all this talk of, uh, of, of light pollution and stars, mm-hmm. uh, one of my favorite things to do with you is to get a little crib sheet of uh, things that we can look up and, and see, either sure. with the naked eye, with binoculars, or for the people that have a telescope, a telescope as well. What's worth seeing in the next couple of weeks? Well, here we go. The big one happened. I was talking about this with John Casamitidis on his shows, and this is great. We were talking about over the weekend, and still you can see it, if you look to the southwest after sunset, a nice conjunction of both Venus and Saturn have occurred and will continue to occur. They were best on Monday and Sunday, or Sunday and Monday, and they were about the diameter, a little less than a full moon diameter. So you're looking at Venus, the goddess of love and beauty, this bright object, you can't miss it, it looks like a searchlight. And just to the lower right on Sunday and Monday, Saturn, which is nearly a billion miles away, that is a very interesting group. But Venus is going to move away from Saturn, so their, you know, their love affair is kind of slowly separating temporarily. But that's an interesting sight in the sky. And then as we move into the next month, obviously Comet ZTF that we talked about, people should check it out in our uh, Dr. Sky blog, which is also at wabcradio.com. We have the whole, you know, sheet on how to find the comet and best ways to watch it and star mm. charts. People can load that and download that. But coming up in the month of February, we have another couple of close conjunctions. But early March, like March 1, how about this? The two brightest planets in the heavens, both Venus and Jupiter, will come together less than a moon diameter in the sky in the southwest after sunset. Frank, that's outstanding. That's the stuff of the biblical yeah. stories of conjunctions. So that's a few of the things we could go on, but uh, those are some of the highlights, and people can learn more, of course, by checking the podcast and blogs. Absolutely. Let me say hello to Greg in New Jersey. Hello, Greg. Good evening, gentlemen. Uh, My question is, when we finally do go back to the moon, will Mm -hmm. the astronauts be broadcasting in high-definition television and sending HD pictures back to our living rooms? And if they do... Because the moon is a quarter million miles away, will there be a loss in quality in the high-definition pictures, or Mm. will it still be crystal clear? 
Greg, that's one of the greatest questions ever. I've been advocating a little lunar lander like a robot to land right by the Apollo 11 landing site and do it in 8K. But I'm not sure what they're going to do here with this new mission. I would imagine they'll have the latest of technologies, but would the signal strength be diminished? I'm not sure. It, It probably could be diminished a slight bit, but with these new technologies here, I think we're going to see something that's really going to have our eyes pop out of our head compared to the very vague and ghostly images that we saw on Apollo, especially the very early ones. But that's a good point, because with this great technology, I'd imagine I want to be with you, Frank, and and, and you, Greg, and all the other listeners here of this fine show, so we can all sit there and gather in some big movie theater. That would be a knockout of the park, wouldn't it? But I'm Yes, yes, yes. And you know what? With the success of the Artemis one, I really believe that we're really going to go back to the moon again. Well, we are, and obviously for other reasons, and a lot of people think it's just for military reasons. No, not necessarily. We're hoping that that's not the case in the long run. But to go out and find resources on the moon, it's an early developmental thing with this helium-3 isotope. This could be something, as Senator Harrison Schmidt and astronaut Harrison Schmidt, the only geologist to go to the moon on Apollo, even Hmm. said, if you harvest this particular isotope of uh, helium, there is a way to do some process where you could convert it, probably a little more economical than what we don't have now. And great kudos to the folks that are developing the fusion power. You know, we had a more energy output than input in fusion technology over the last month. But yes, harvesting different elements and and materials on the moon, this will be fascinating. And I just hope in maybe the remaining life that I have, we can watch people go there on a regular basis and make it as usual as people would take a flight, of, say, around the world somewhere and return safely. Thank you well, for I the call. I look forward to that HD picture. Yeah, same, Absolutely, my friend. Same here. All Thank right. you for the call, Greg. 800-848-9222. Steve, uh, I, I think you had said maybe even two weeks ago when we spoke that you had uh, interviewed Buzz Aldrin previously. Oh, yes. And uh, I, he, I saw that he uh, just got married at the age of, uh, of 93 years old. I'll tell you, Buzz Aldrin, uh, I've spoken to him a couple times, mostly oh, in, yes. in interviews that I've been producing mm-hmm. for others, but it just strikes me as such a character. I- I'm wondering if you can give any insight into Buzz Aldrin, either as a person or what his contributions have meant to the world of space travel or science. Well, I'm glad you asked, Frank, and again, kudos to him. I hope that by the time I'm 93, I'm as happy as I would want to be, but God bless him. I mean, here's a man who actually, the lady he married, and forgive me for not knowing her name, she's also a PhD, as Mm -hmm. he is, and I believe hers is chemical engineering, and she worked in his organization. Right. So I guess that's how they were together. But on this personal note, I've met him many times in person. We actually had him open up. I was asked to open up what I call First Light, an observatory out here in Arizona. And we had him as a guest as part of the, you know, the dais there, of course, his high honor would be a number two on the moon. But he's such an interesting guy to listen to. But if you listen to, and actually, I don't know, these are some of the stories that I find most bizarre. I think he was actually suing somebody in court or somebody was suing him about the allegation that he never went to the moon. I think that was the way. And I think the guy lunged at him and he really gave him a I don't know, kind of a knuckle sandwich. So That's he, right. I actually interviewed that guy uh, that uh, that Buzz Aldrin punched. And well, then, uh, you're the expert. You he, know well, better. I, I'm not so sure, uh, but I thought that was certainly <clears throat> interesting. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Let me say hello to Mike in Queens. Hello, Mike. Yeah. First of all, I want to thank one of the other calls for answering my uh, space junk question because it looks Good like. 
the BQE at rush hour up there, I'm sure, right now, with all the junk floating around. Uh, the other thing is um, uh, I, I, I was listening about advertising on the moon, and I love looking at the moon. It's so pure and yes. honest and whatever. And now I hear that they're going to try and do, like, laser advertising on the face of the moon. And I'm just curious, is there any way to stop that, or is that actually a reality happening? Oh, and last thing, would either of you – uh, take a one-way trip to Mars to live on Mars for the rest of your life. And I'll take my well, answers off the air. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you, Mike. Boy, that's a lot there, but you're oh, yeah. so right. You know, it's very, very interesting to talk about this. I think I'll go backwards. I don't know if I really have the guts to do a one-way trip to Mars. I mean, I'm being honest with this audience. I think it's fascinating, but if you really read it, I'm sure everybody who'd read the 20, 30, 100-page document about what you can expect, I don't know. I don't think I'm physically in the best shape of my life. I used to be a pretty good athlete, but I don't know if I would do that. That's my personal response on that. But as far as, as talking about the other the other subject like that, I think it's terrible and it's a pretty big disgrace if they would destroy the moon in such a way like that because obviously look how many billions of years it sat there. Again, no one nation can apparently own the surface of the moon or the moon itself, just like Antarctica. You know, it's not anyone really claims that that's theirs, though they say they do. But no, I uh, I find that a little bit disturbing. Uh, what about you, Frank? I mean, isn't that weird seeing advertising coming on the surface of the moon? I, I don't think, think so. We need it. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm with you 100. percent And uh, I, a little bit. Let me go on record as saying I would not take that one way trip uh, to the to Mars. Well, I'm glad uh, you said it quicker than I did. But you're right. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a little bizarre. Now, let me describe what Mike's talking about. A nine month journey, more than likely, to we're talking one way. And this is very interesting because Dr. Mikolos, who appears, of course, with uh, John sure. Show, a big listener respect, to us as well, probably listening yeah, right now. And I respect his his knowledge in the, in that area greatly. But he was bringing up a point about the problematic thing of you know having radiation in space, and that's true. So what we would need, what would we need to do? Absolutely, cosmic rays, which are still penetrating. I don't care how many thick layers of lead or whatever you would use to protect yourself there's still this big high probability that you're in an environment where that's not good for your health overall. So unless there was a way, and I don't know what that way is, we'll leave that to the experts, that would be difficult itself. I don't want to call it a suicide mission. I mean, but from the pure joy of the whole thing, I'll bet you you would find a whole list of people who'd sign up right now, mm. and they'd be dead serious that they would go. Uh, no, I, I think there actually is a wait list, and I think okay. a lot of people actually have uh, signed up for a, a mission well, like that if it ever takes place. So I think, I think you're... I'll wait. <laughs> I'm, I'm, with, I'm with you. Hey, uh, you alluded to Antarctica before in terms yes. of being a spot for stargazing. What else do we know about Antarctica? Obviously, because of the lack of population there, the lack of civilization there, it's kind of the most mysterious of all the continents. What do we know about it? Well, it's quite fascinating. I mean, no one can really claim it, but it's actually the world's largest desert. Hmm. And many people don't recognize that. And something else that bugs me, too, a few things do, but on on this particular show, we'll stick to astronomy and space. If you look at a regular map of the entire Earth, how many times from childhood, even up to adulthood, you take a look at the map and you see Antarctica, Antarctica, excuse me, as this big, gigantic, massive landmass that looks like at the bottom of the map that it's the biggest thing on the Earth. It's an improper map. It's not showing us the true definition, but not the split hairs. Some of the other things we find out, it's the coldest, windiest, driest, and highest continent on the Earth. The average height of the surface of, of, of Antarctica is about 8,200 8, feet. 
and the coldest temperature ever recorded on the Earth back in July of 1983, well, get a load of this, minus 128.6 Fahrenheit. That's pretty unbearable. But it gets really interesting when I talk about this. If I was now in Antarctica, you would say to me, well, Steve, uh, I would ask you, what time is it in New York City? And you would tell me, there's no official time zone in Antarctica. I don't know if people realize that. So any location that has habitation, what they do for convenience is just go on the same time zone. Let's say we had one and you're in New York, that we would have the same time as New York as we're communicating. That's an interesting fact, too. And there's another phenomenal fact, too. At least 11 babies have actually been born in Antarctica. Hmm. You never hear about that. That's another amazing fact. That's wild. I mean, you talk about a a unique place in world history. That's Absolutely. And finally, or almost finally, Antarctica has a lake so salty that it doesn't freeze. And it has, according to many geologists, an underground forest that's way under the ice pack. So it might have been, a long time ago, a very habitable place when the Earth and plate tectonics shifted all the continents, as we do know. The planet Earth has plate tectonics. Mars, unfortunately, doesn't, and Mars doesn't have a a magnetic field. But something else, Antarctica is actually larger in landmass than the entire United States. So the bottom line is nobody's sure who discovered Antarctica. There's a long story about that, but it's officially dedicated to, guess what, peaceful purposes, mm-hmm. just like we hope the moon would be and other planetary objects. 800-848-9222. James is in Oregon. Hello, James. Hello. got one question. What happens in space? Does that affect earthquakes happening on Earth? I'm sorry, sir. I'm trying to understand. In other words, if there's if you're in space, does an earthquake affect you out in space? Is that what you're saying? No, what what happens in space? Does that affect earthquakes on Earth? Well, yes, it can. And and I can tell you one categorical answer on this is when you have excessive powerful CME blasts from the sun, there is a propensity where the earth itself can be affected because all that radiation and energy The Earth itself could be pushed in a way, very slightly, but that could also magnify itself when it moves through into the Earth's Earth's core. And another thing that we're finding out is interesting, too, is that we're finding out through scientists that the Earth's solid inner core may actually have slowed down or stopped and is about to reverse. So we don't really know truly what happens from the cosmos. All kinds of fields of energy and radiation do affect the Earth That's a simple way to put it, but uh, the search continues for the culprit. Thank you. 800-848-9222. We're going to continue with uh, Steve Cates in just a moment. If you want to hear more from Steve, you could check out the Dr. Sky Experience podcast. You could just go to redapplepodcastnetwork.com. Just search Dr. Sky. You'll not only hear uh, his own podcast, but you'll hear appearances that he's done with John Katzmatidis on his show. So there's a ton of great content on there, including some great mini podcasts as well. We'll continue in just a moment with your calls and a number of questions I have as well. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Black hole sun, won't you come? Wash away the rain. Black hole sun, won't you come? Won't you come? Won't you come? 
This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano, joined for the hour by Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. Uh, a lot going on in the world of space, in the world of astronomy, and we are just uh, scratching the surface on some of the issues that are uh, interesting a lot of people. Steve, I, one issue that uh, that caught my attention mm-hmm. this week was this story about progress being made in experiments to redirect lightning. I mean, this is wild. I don't even know that Benjamin Franklin could have imagined anything like this. Well, higher technology, of course, goes to the top of the uh, the line here. It's very interesting. What apparently scientists, not astronomers, are doing is actually ways to dampen the effects of lightning strikes on big buildings and, you know, big massive structures. What they're actually going to do, or actually tried to do, is fire a very intense beam as a laser up into the sky. Now, these are very powerful lasers. So it would do is what it would do is attract the lightning to the laser mm. light. I don't know where it goes from there. They must have some kind of insulators to protect that from burning up. But that is an interesting concept to divert that type of lightning. Because let's go back to space. You know, we know that buildings get hit all the time, but did most people or do most people know that the Apollo twelve upon its launch was actually going through a thunderstorm and it was struck by lightning as the Apollo Saturn V was headed up to the moon. And up into atmosphere. And apparently, thank goodness, thank goodness, one of the astronauts on board in one of the three couches, he knew a certain relay to switch and turn because all their instrumentation went blank. And if it wasn't for that switchover or that one who remembered what to do, that whole mission would have had to abort and that rocket would have exploded wow. over the ocean. Now, I have a little bit of breaking news, if you don't oh, mind. Oh, please, I, lay it I on us. I alluded to this before, that there's an asteroid, get a load of this, folks, asteroid 2023BU. It's a newly discovered asteroid. Why is it important? It's going to pass extremely close to the Earth tomorrow, or today, excuse me, at 4.17 p.m. Eastern Standard Time over South America. Now, don't get too alarmed, folks. It's only 16 feet in diameter. Well, that's pretty big. But guess how close it's coming? Only 2,174 miles over the earth. Now, I'm in Phoenix, you're in New York. The distance as the bird would fly is 2,159 miles. That's the exact diameter of the moon. So that object is coming a moon diameter above the earth, 16 feet in diameter. That's a close shave, don't you think? Oh, uh, no doubt about it. Uh, that is, uh, that's something. 800-848-9222. Thomas is in Baltimore. Hello, Thomas. How you doing? Good, Good Thomas. What's your question? Doing great. Yeah, uh, I saw these uh, documentaries on uh, UAPs with George and Apple on the TV a little while ago. Do yes, you think sir. there's anything out there? Absolutely. I think there's plenty out there. And you're bringing up a very good point. I wish we had more time, and maybe we'd talk about it in depth and you call back the next program. But what we're talking about here is these UAPs. There's so many in the latest release that the government has on these, you know, UAP objects, thus UFOs, where of, say, 5,000 sightings that can't be explained, we have 1,000 or more that are truly unexplained. And I want to get to the bottom of this, like a lot of people out there. I believe very strongly that there's a suppression of information that's pretty obvious from what we should know. It all goes back even way before Roswell. But let's, uh, let's hope that we get some revelations. The strangest one of all is this whole Tic Tac conversation. What the heck are these things that the Navy's seen, documented, F-18 fighters have gone out and scrambled off carriers, actually chased these mm. things, 
nothing I know goes from the ocean floor, or not the ocean floor, but the ocean surface, to 60,000 feet in a second and darts across the sky. I don't know anybody that has that kind of technology. So, yes, I'm ready to hear what the real truth is, and let's continue to search for it. You know, there was a story uh, that's gotten a lot of attention in the last 24 hours. A bunch of people have emailed it to me as well uh, that has to do with, uh, and this was put out by Jeremy Corbell, who's been a guest on this show, and uh, it has to do with uh, the possibility of a UFO being photographed over Mosul, Iraq, in 2016. Uh, did you see the photo that has gotten so much acclaim, Steve, and did you I'm have honest, any sort of take on it? I have not seen that at all, Frank, but I know that I see it in my email that you sent me, and I must be honest, I didn't see that. But the answer that I would give over all these things out there, there's so many of these type mm. of sightings coming in all throughout the world, and the simple explanation that it's swamp gas or airplanes or reentering satellites or meteors doesn't jive with most people, including myself. So there must be some type of technology out there that's coming out. And I know my theory is very bizarre, but here we go with Tic Tacs really quickly. I believe deeply that whatever the Tic Tac technology is, it's truly an you know, intervention between artificial intelligence and the future. This is in the future. Now, the humankind, obviously, not to be negative, let's say the Earth was extinguished with a nuclear holocaust or an asteroid impact. Mm. Most of the remaining humans went underground. I'm talking way into the future here. could be hundreds, thousand years. The integration of AI, that's a pretty scary subject out there. That and the biological entity of the human combining themselves together, I believe strongly, I know I sound a little flippant on this, may have had the ability to understand what Einstein was talking Hmm. about, of transforming the space-time continuum. So maybe what we're seeing is those objects coming back dimensionally from another world, another time, but closer to us, not out in the galaxy somewhere, and that the integration of artificial intelligence and the, the sentient being connection between a biological entity and a artificial intelligence, you know, power, may have the ability to transform space and time, and that they may be like an organ. It may be like a, a lung or a heart. This thing has intelligence, but it knows the ability to have us transform space and time. So That's you think uh, that there's actually a, a realistic possibility that some of the uh, the objects that people are seeing, including naval pilots could actually be from, say, the future? I do believe this. I really do, Frank, because if you look at I was reading so many reports during the week here about what artificial intelligence can do. Apparently, it can pass the bar examination with no problem. Oh, and some medical licensing exams and uh, <laughs> and no and and some um, right. Wall Street exams like the right. uh, you know different uh, you know series seven type exams sure. and stuff. So I hope people don't think I'm off my rocker here, but obviously I'm entitled to an opinion like everybody. But here it is. I think yes. I think the ability to move through time and space is the ability to understand what Einstein tried to figure out, that if, you can be, if you're able to warp the space-time continuum, there may be a way to move around interdimensionally. And that's another subject for another time. But, no, I'm open to those possibilities. Folks, it's all in the quantum, in the quantum physics world right hmm. now. Wow. You know, the, the strange thing called quantum entanglement, how can something theoretically go faster than light as if you had a light switch on one side of a galaxy, instead of traveling the normal time that light would take it, like 150,000 light years between one part of our Milky Way. But in this quantum entanglement concept, it's able to do so instantaneously moving through space-time. 
that's bizarre. But that, it's, I yeah. don't make this stuff up. No, that's that's uh, that, that's fascinating. Uh, Richard in Manhattan has a question that was on my list as well. Hello, Richard. Richard. Good morning. All right, Richard's got something else to do, so I'll I'll just ask about it. Hey, there was a, a story I saw it. I think it was on uh, Fox News about a radio signal from nine billion light years away, nine billion light years away from Earth, captured by a telescope on Earth. What can you tell us about this radio signal, if anything? Frank, I think they're mostly what's called fast radio bursts. What they are, we're not really sure, but let, let's say what most astronomers kind of I hate the word guess. This is what they think that these signals that are coming out from the early part of the creation of the universe, we're talking the billions of light years, billions of years ago, they may be the energies coming out from these neutron stars or these gamma ray pulsars. In other words, it's like take a lighthouse and it spins. Somehow, some way, so much concentrated energy is there because the thing is so collapsed. The density of, you know, it's like the densest things in the entire universe they spit out these big blasts. They're like big, big, long lines like a laser would be almost. And I think this is what the energy that they're seeing, not knowing the, you know, the, the source of actually where it comes from. And now there's a whole new classification of stars. We talk about black holes, and we talk about black holes have this thing around them called the event horizon. So now astronomers have theorized, and I think they've got one that they're really looking at, called Bukdal stars, named after the astronomer who developed it. What is it or, or, or discovered it? or theorized it. It would be a star like a black hole that has no event horizon, but all it is is just a matter, of, just an area where the concentration of all the energy is so compact. It would be one of the most compact objects in the universe, but without the entire disk around it that we would call that whole region that surrounds most black holes, which means that's what you would fall into. So what's the mechanism of Buchdahl stars? There's not really sure, but Every day something comes up, Frank. It's even more mysterious and more fascinating, and that's why I'm so privileged and honored to be here with you and and the listeners of this great show. Oh, no. uh, The uh, privilege is uh, all mine, and uh, I hear uh, from so many of the listeners, they really enjoy your insight as as well. Hey, um, do you have an opinion, and I'm guessing you do, on the debate that's going on all over the country, really, and especially all over the state, over gas stoves, uh, there's been some concerns, uh, in, in all seriousness, it's become so cartoonish, yes. the debate, but there's been some concerns that uh, this could lead to uh, not only environmental problems, but breathing and respiratory problems, particularly in young people. Have you looked at this at all? What's your take on this? Well, I guess I'm spoiled because in our nice home, we have one of these wolf stoves and it's a gas stove and I enjoy cooking on it. But to being really serious here. Obviously, there's dangers that we have from gas if somebody leaves it on. You know, the old stories if something was left on and somebody lit a cigarette. Obviously, that's dangerous. But my problem with that whole thing, Frank, is the ability for us to produce enough electric for all the needs that we have across the board. Show me, not you personally, but show me that we can develop enough power and sustain it for electric cars and all the things that we're supposed to go off of. You know, I'm, I'm obviously for clean energy. But I always thought that gas was a clean source. I mean, I never quite understood why it's so demonized. Yeah, uh, Steve, on that note, we're going to have to leave it there. It's always a treat. Until next time in two weeks, uh, keep reaching for the stars and keep your feet on the ground. Thank you, Frank.